0: Today's reading is from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you,
1: the Lord be with you. Uh, welcome to our service. Uh, before I begin, I just have two uh, announcements I, I do want to make. Uh, one is that uh, after um, lunch today, uh, at one o'clock, we're going to be screening a film called Screenagers. Uh, I know you've heard the announcements already, and will be an announcement at the end of the service, but I want to just encourage all of you, especially those of you uh, who have teenagers, uh, to uh, attend the Uh, screening. I think it'll be a a very good discussion, a good conversation for us to have together. And the other announcement I want to uh, alert you to is beginning next week, uh, we will have our Lenten after church uh, small groups once again. And so this year, um, as we've done in years past, following the service, uh, we will share a meal together and then we will break up into uh, smaller groups to have a time of study together. And <clears throat> this year we're going to break up into the uh, setup and cleanup crews. So uh, if you are a member of this church, you've been assigned to one of six groups already. If you are not a member of the group, but, uh, of the church, but you want to participate, uh, we will assign you to one of the six groups uh, next week. And so again, we want to invite everyone to uh, stick around and participate in that uh, for this period of Lent. Uh, it's just a really a valuable time that we have together to um, study God's Word together. Um, this year, it's going to be a little bit different than in previous years also, in that we are going to have the small groups with all of the church. So the groups will have uh, the children, the youth, and you will be meeting with, uh, with your families. And part of this is we want to um, help those of you with children uh, to pray together uh, as families. And we want to pray with, with the whole church together. And so we will be studying the Lord's Prayer together during the season of Lent. And we're going to pray together. And so we're going to have, uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be shorter because we realize there are going to be kids there. We're going to have some crafts. So those of you who like crafts, adults, uh, we're going to have some of that as well. And uh, hopefully it'll be an opportunity for all of us uh, to learn to pray together. As a church, so I want to just uh, again encourage you to uh, mark your calendars for the next uh, six Sundays to be here to stick around an extra hour or two uh, for for lunch and then our time together uh, in small groups. All right, uh, please pray with me, Lord. We thank you again uh, for gathering us this day. We thank you um, that we can come and lift our voices uh, in worship. And now, would you uh, open our ears and our hearts uh, that in the hearing of your word? Uh, We might be strengthened, we might be challenged, we might hear your word, and so be obedient to that word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this is now the uh, fourth sermon in a series of sermons that I'm preaching uh, through the letters of John. And so far, we've seen that John has reminded the church what they have known from the beginning, that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God, made flesh, whose life, death, and resurrection was witnessed by the church. And he writes and proclaims this truth, this experience, so that we may have fellowship with God and with one another, so that our mutual joy might be made complete, and so that we may not sin. Because God is light, we cannot walk in sin and darkness and have fellowship with him. To do that, would be to demonstrate that we are, in fact, not in the light, that we do not know God, that we do not have fellowship with God. Last week, I said that there are three tests, or perhaps three assurances, that we know God, that we are walking in the light, that we have fellowship with God. John wrote that we have come to know God first, if we keep his commandments, and second, If we love our brothers and sisters, so if you are obedient to God's word and you love your brothers and sisters, those are indicators, those are signs that you know God. In a way, you know, they're two same tests because the great commandment, of course, is to love. And so if you love, then you are actually fulfilling the commandment to obey God's commandments. That brings us to our reading today and the third test of whether or not we truly love God and whether or not we truly know God. And the third test is this. The third test, whether or not you know God, is who you say Jesus is. John says that the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ does not have the Father or the Son, does not know the Father. The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ does not abide in the Father and is a liar. And the lie has no part of the truth. The lie, the darkness, has no part in the light. Now, what I want you to keep in mind is that this is not an argument directed against non-Christians. This is about some members of the church who deny that Jesus is the Christ and separated from the fellowship of the church. It may be that this group of people were obedient to God's commandments. Maybe they they kept the Ten Commandments. It may even be that they loved one another. Those are fine. But because they deny that Jesus is the Christ, John says, they cannot be a part of the fellowship with God and with us. They cannot know God if they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Earlier in the letter, John had described these people, in contrast to those who know God, as those who walk in darkness, as those who are not practicing the truth, those who are not cleansed by the blood of Christ, those who are deceived into thinking that they have no sin, that they are unrepentant, boasting of their sinlessness, disobedient to the commands of God, falsely claiming to know God, hateful, blinded, unforgiven, and succumbing to the love of the world. Those are pretty harsh things to say. But now he uses an even stronger word. He says that those who deny that Jesus is the Christ they are not only liars, he calls them Antichrist. He calls them Antichrists. I know that in many churches and in the popular imagination, the Antichrist is some cosmic supernatural figure, perhaps Satan, perhaps the one bearing the mark 666, the beast some final demonic enemy of God who will be defeated in a final apocalyptic battle. As such, the title of Antichrist has been assigned to various people throughout history. In the period of the Reformation, this was the favorite label that Martin Luther used to give to the Pope. He said, the Pope is the Antichrist. And then the Catholic Church responded, labeling Luther the Antichrist and all the other reformers as well. In more recent years, Hitler, Stalin, Gorbachev, Obama, Trump, they've all received this label at some point in their lives. But this sort of powerful political figure is not what John has in mind when he uses this word. In fact, it may surprise you that the word Antichrist only appears in the two letters of John. A few times in this letter and once in Second John. That's it. None of the other New Testament writers use this word. The other writers mention something similar, such as false prophets, false messiahs, the man of lawlessness, the abomination of desolation. And over time, people have just sort of conflated all of these different words as one, as the Antichrist. But that is not what John is doing here. That is not clear that that they should all be the same thing. For John... The Antichrist, or notice here, the Antichrists in plural, are simply those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. This is not some one supernatural being who will come in the future to oppose God on some cosmic scale. Rather, these are many, and they're already present. These are former members of the church who have now come to deny that Jesus is the Christ. These are from within the community who have left, not some outside or some demonic force. Today, we would probably just call these folks, um, they used to be Christians or they used to come to our church, something like that. But John is very harsh here and he says they're they're because they deny that Jesus is a Christ. They deny that Jesus is a Christ. And he goes on to say that their presence, the fact that there are people like this, proves that this is the last hour. Just like the word Antichrist, I know there's a lot of confusion, again, uh, also about what the last hour means. And again, people think of the last hour as the, um, the Judgment Day or the Apocalypse, Armageddon, um, and so on. And every year, of course, someone writes another book predicting when that's going to be, that the end of the world is near, and that we are living now in the last few moments of history. Uh, You've probably heard, for example, about the Doomsday Clock. It's a symbol that was created by members of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to represent symbolically how close we are as humanity to global catastrophe and extinction. When they first created the clock back in 1947... They set the clock at seven minutes before midnight. That's how close they thought we were to extinction. Midnight representing the end of humanity. Over the last 70 plus years, they have changed the clock about two dozen times, moving it back and forth depending on what was going on in the world to indicate how close we were getting to total catastrophe. Events, positive and negative, perceived threats, as posed by nuclear weapons, bioterrorism, artificial intelligence, and climate change. The last time they moved the clock was January of this year, just a, few, just a month ago. It now stands at one minute and 40 seconds before midnight, the closest that the clock has ever been, the closest to midnight it has ever been. You have probably thought at some point in your life, maybe this week, as you look at the world, as you witness the kind of tearing of the social, political, natural, economic fabric of the globe, that we are living indeed in the last days. You wonder about the world and wonder about how we might continue to sustain life as we know it. You may worry for the world that your kids and your grandkids will inherit in the future. But this isn't the primary sense of the last hour for John or for us. It's not that John and the other New Testament writers were somehow completely wrong thinking that Jesus was going to come back within their lifetimes and so they live in this sort of heightened sense of spirituality anticipating the end in the next day or so. There was some of that. But that's not what John is really thinking about here. The last hour is not to be thought of in chronological terms. That after a certain passage of time, there it is. The last hour, the last days, it's more of a theological statement. We know that God counts time very differently from us. But that an end will come and that it will surprise everyone. But we know that we are all now, as then, living in the end, in the last hour, because Christ has come, and Christ has ushered in the new age and the new kingdom. And therefore, it is the beginning, at least, of the last days. J.H. Newman, a 19th century minister, explained it this way. He wrote, history runs not towards the end, but along it, and on the brink of it, and is at all times near that great event, which did it run towards it, it would at once run into. That's a little confusing, so let me try to explain it this way. The way I understand it, history and the end, it's like a bowling alley. I remember when my <coughs> kids were little, they could barely get the ball moving down the alley. And sometimes they would roll the ball and it would just cling to the very edge of the alley. And somehow it just, you knew that like if a puff of wind came, it would go into the gutter. And you would just watch as it slowly rolled down the alley. Maybe it would hit that 10th pin or maybe it will fall over into the gutter. That's what Newman is saying. He's saying the end is like that gutter. And history is like that ball running in parallel with the gutter. It could fall in at any minute, at any second. And when it does, that, that's the end, right? But, but it's this, this constant idea of being in the last days. It's not like there's the end and, you know, we're going to get there eventually. It's this kind of ideal of running parallel with one another. And that's what John has in mind here, that this is now the last hour. Christ then, he writes, uh, Newman, Christ then is ever at our doors. It's in that sense, we are in the last days. So then it was true, and it's true today. And by doing this, John here protects us from two common and wrong extreme positions that sometimes people take. One is that we think that the last hour is not here yet, that it's never going to come, right? Certainly not in my lifetime, and so maybe I don't have to worry about it. I can just kind of ignore it and live my life the way I want to because the, the end, the judgment, all that stuff is, you know, that's just thousands of years away. And John says, no, this is the last stage. You are in the last hour. He's in it. We're in it. But John also protects us from the other extreme, that of becoming, you know, like doomsday preppers. Thinking, it's next week. I gotta, I got you know, buy gas and, and store food and, and things like that. And notice, he doesn't tell us to head underground or to quit our jobs and just go and evangelize. He says, watch out for those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And abide in that which you have heard from the beginning. Abide in the Son and the... Right? This idea of continuing in what you have known, to continue being in Christ. We are all living in the last hour, not because the end of the world is imminent, but because Jesus has come and he has ushered in the new age. It means now, because of that, we are called to a particular way of life. And it's not to ignore it, and it's not to panic. The Apostle Paul, for example, writes this to the Romans. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, what shall we do? He writes, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Walk in the light. Similarly, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. We're in the last hour. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That's a little surprising, isn't it? We're living in the last days, and sometimes people like, want to do something like extraordinary, But he says, be fervent in your faith. Keep walking in the light. Keep on loving. Show hospitality. Watch out for false teachers. Watch out for those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to live. The word Christ, as you know, is a title. And it means the anointed one or the Messiah. To deny Jesus is the Christ then is to reject Jesus as the Savior, to reject God's plan of redemption on the cross. To deny Jesus as the Christ is to deny the truth and therefore tantamount to calling God a liar. To deny Jesus as the Christ is to deny the Father because there is no separability between the Father and the Son. We cannot have fellowship with the Father without the Son. If we peek a little bit ahead in the letter, we get a little bit more information about these deniers. In chapter 4, John writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It seems that those who left this church Deny that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was seen, the one that was heard, the one that was touched and handled and experienced, had come in the flesh. They apparently struggled with the humanity of Christ, of God in the flesh, that he who was and is from the beginning, the eternal word, the one who was with God and is God, had somehow become flesh. That God from true God, light from light, had somehow become and come in the flesh. Real flesh, not semi-flesh, not seemingly flesh, but real flesh like you and me. They denied that this human being, this being that they walked with could somehow be the Christ. Not just the Savior, but the Christ, the unique Son of God, and God himself enfleshed. I know that there are churches for whom the nature of Christ does not matter very much. There are churches for whom the love commandment overwhelms everything else, and so Jesus becomes nothing more than a moral teacher or an example to us of how to love one another. There are churches for whom in the name of tolerance the unique claims of Jesus Christ as the one truth, the one way and through whom no one comes to the Father is set aside and all but dismissed. I know that there are churches for whom maintaining peace among the plurality of religions places Jesus as one among many equally viable guides to the divine ignoring the gospel that there is salvation in no one else but in Jesus, for there is no name under heaven which is given to us by which we may be saved. When I was in college, um, I wasn't very consistent in my uh, church attendance, and I visited a number of different churches. One of them um, that I attended for a while was part of a denomination that was having a conference in California. And so, of course, I went. And I didn't know very much about the church that I was attending, and I knew nothing about the denomination that this church was a part of. And so uh, I went because I I liked the people and my church was going to send me. When I got to the conference, uh, I got a little nervous. In the worship services and in the seminars for two days, for two whole days, um, people would occasionally mention God, but for two days, no one ever mentioned the name of Jesus. Now, I think it's, you can do that at some conferences, but this was a denominational church conference. And so I, I got a little bit anxious, and especially as the time wore on, uh, I got increasingly anxious. Uh, and finally, on the third day, someone gave a message a black preacher, and he mentioned Jesus. And so then I thought, okay, at least this is not a cult and, you know, this this might be okay. I could not articulate it back then, but I realize now that as I look back that it was a denomination that cared more about morality, about doing good, and many of them were just really nice people, but they were a church for whom the fact that Jesus is the Christ just didn't matter. It's not what identified them. It's not what they were all about. But I want to tell you, it matters that Jesus is the Christ. Everything depends on this. This is not, you know, some minor issue that we can have disagreements about. This is the center. Jesus is the Christ. We cannot have fellowship without this. We cannot love. The earlier commandments to love and to be obedient to God's commandments are meaningless without this third test. John is writing to the Christian church. He's talking about obedience to God's word, he's talking about loving one another in the context of the Christian church, without this fellowship in Christ, without Christ being the center of it doesn't matter. It's not that we're trying to exclude other people. It's not that we cannot work toward some common good with other people. In fact, we, we should work with others and support any act of love. We should carry on civil conversations and be respectful of other belief systems, of course. But to have fellowship with the Father, to have Christian fellowship in any meaningful sense as the scriptures teach... Is not possible without the confession that Jesus is the Christ. There can be no fellowship without this. Jesus is the Christ. Our identity, our reality, and our only hope rests upon this truth. Because if you know that Jesus is the Christ, then you know that he is your savior. You know that he is a son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You know that he has the power to save because he is God. And you know that in his resurrection, he proved himself to be true. Knowing Jesus is the Christ gives you the confidence because you know now that the forgiveness of your sins does not depend upon you nor upon your work, but upon what he has done for you. What God has done in Jesus Christ for you. Your salvation, the promises, John writes, of eternal life is not upon you, but upon God because Jesus is the Christ. And John writes, you know this already. This this is just a reminder, he says. You have known this from the beginning. You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he says, who will lead you into all the truth. The truth that you have known from the beginning concerning the word of life. So John asks Are you walking in the light? Are you keeping God's commandments? Do you know that there is forgiveness possible through confession when you sin? Do you love your brothers and sisters? And do you know that Jesus is the Christ? Again, These are not words to threaten you or to frighten you, to make you insecure. They're given to you to reassure you that you are in the Father, that you know God, that you have the promise of eternal life because you know these things, that you can have confidence, that you can know that you have eternal life. When you declare that Jesus is the Christ, you can have the reassurance and the confidence that in him your sins are forgiven and you have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit both now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are Reminded today of the central truth of our fellowship that Jesus is the Christ, the one unique Son of God given to us for us and for our salvation. Lord, help us to know this truth, to declare this truth. And in so doing, be reassured that we are in you, that we abide in you, that we know you. And that knowing you, as Jesus reminds us, this is eternal life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.